welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 171, recorded June 19th, 2014. So today we're covering Star Trek Unlimited number 5, which came out late of 1997, and also the one-shot Mirror Mirror number 1, which came out earlier that same year. Right. And that Mirror Mirror is a sequel to the famous, stupendous, Taz episode. Legendary. Legendary. Even a better word. Well, that's the one that said on the cover, so uh, that's the one I'm using. (laughs) Go with that. It was a very good episode. One of the better ones from Taz Land. Right. And we get to see how it plays out after Kirk, our Kirk, returns to the normal dimension. So, cool. Right. Yeah. And does this contradict what it does contradict what the mirror mirror episodes of Deep Space Nine said happened. So, yes, but you always know how that can go. It could be a slightly different dimension. It might not even be the exact same dimension. Oh, it could be the mirror mirror two dimension. Gotcha. The, the mirror 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 dimension. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> Who knows? All right. And by the way. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but John Scalzi, excellent series of books, Old Man's War. And they're all, their entire theory of faster-than-light travel is all centered around the idea of multiple dimensions. Oh, really? Infinite dimensions, yes. So the idea, in a nutshell, is when you travel from point A to point B in a very distant place, their version of warp drive, they don't call it warp drive, basically... When you arrive at your destination, you're not even in the same dimension that you started it from. But because you ended up in a dimension that is so close to yours, it doesn't matter. Isn't that weird? That is crazy. That is totally crazy, man. Anyway. So in your dimension, in your dimension, you're still traveling, but in this dimension, you've already arrived? Something like that, yeah. It's very odd. It just blows your mind, man. Anyway, So, I mean, how different are the two universes? Do they... They're extremely close. So close, it doesn't matter. They're still on Earth. They're still uh, the Colonial Union. All that kind of stuff. It's all the same. And even some of the other species are the same. They're so close. But in one, you're in a different physical place, and they're... uh, Anyway, it's... So if you have a kid and stuff, you're definitely going to have that kid and stuff in the uh, alternate dimension? Yes. The whole idea – oh, I don't want to digress on this thing. (laughs) The main point is that you'll – just because the way it works from physics or whatever, you'll always end up in an exceedingly close dimension to where you started from. So things are very close to the same as opposed to a dimension where things are are very different where – you're actually some kind of troglodyte with three eyes. Right. Anyway. Interesting. Yes. I digress. 
Well, do you want to move on to uh, our first book? <laughs> Let's do. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll do uh, Star Trek Unlimited number five. The cover date on it is September 97, yet the inside title page date is July 1997. So just to make it a little confusing. All right, so the first story is a Star Trek Next Generation story entitled Secret Lives. Dan Abnett and Ian Edkinton is the writers. Pencils by Ron Randall. Al Williamson inks. Kevin Tinsley colors. Phil Felix letterer. Chip Carter likes dark space stations. Tim Tuohy afraid of the dark. And Bob Harris fears nothing. And then we have some additional inks by Art Nichols. The cover shows a Borg version of Lieutenant Shelby, along with four other Borg Starfleet crew standing behind her. And they're all stalking towards Commander Riker. And the caption reads, Lieutenant Shelby is a Borg. Is it all Riker's fault? Really reminds me of the Batman 66 show with the questions being asked to you. So that's kind of funny. All right. So the story starts off with Riker taking an away team consisting of Troy, Crusher, and Worf to the Horus Deep Space Array. All contact with the crew aboard the Array has been lost, and the Enterprise was diverted to investigate. Upon arrival, Crusher detects a slight warp distortion not even a nano Cochrane of variants, but small, but still a concern to her. Riker contacts Data, who's still aboard the ship, but their communication fizzles out before Riker can completely check in. The away team then splits up into two groups. Riker and Troy will head to Ops, and Crusher and Worf will investigate the medical bay. En route to Ops, Troy starts to feel odd and slows down. Riker continues on without her. In the medical bay, Crusher and Worf find bodies of eight crew members. All of them died of violent homicides. Worf steps out of the sick bay to secure the perimeter. Then, Crusher notices that she's not alone. Hiding in the corner, she finds the Traveler. His first comment when he notices who she is is, I tried to help him. With that, Crusher is stunned because she knows who the he is that he's talking about. Back in Ops, Troy and Riker find several more dead crew members. They're all still at their stations. They speculate that it looks like they were killed by Federation phasers. The two of them split up to cover more ground. Once alone, Riker is fired at by an unseen enemy. It turns out to be Lieutenant Shelby and several other crew members from the Melbourne. Once she steps out of the shadow, we learn that she's now a Borg. Elsewhere, Worf continues his search, and he finds a Klingon with a Batleth. The Klingon warrior attacks him. Worf is able to take him out fast, but soon another one arrives. Worf, using the Batleth from the first warrior, fights bravely. He asks what this is all about. The second warrior tells him that he was hired by Worf's son, Alexander, to obtain vengeance against his absent and neglectful father. Back in sickbay, Crusher pulls the cover off of a dead body and finds her son's lifeless form. The Traveler tells her about a warp beast 
that the two of them were following here. It is the beast that has caused all the death and destruction here on the station. Troy is wandering the halls in great pain. She is feeling all of the death and the emotions from the station much greater than normal. It is too much for her to handle. Back in Ops, Borg Shelby tells Riker that the new Borg invasion that's coming is all his fault. He had a chance to wipe out the whole Borg back at Wolf 359, yet he chose to save Picard. Elsewhere, as Worf battles several more Klingons and Riker is in a losing battle against the Borg, Troy makes her way to sickbay. Crusher tells her about the Traveler and Wesley's attempt to stop the Warp Beast here at the station, and of their failure. They are also discussing the reason why Troy's powers are intensified, and this is due to the Santarni Syndrome, which we already know Troy's mother has. Crusher's scans then pick up an increase in nanocochrans outside the door. The Traveler tells them that it must be the Warp Beast. Crusher gets her phaser set to maximum. As the door opens, she starts to fire. Troy moves her arm out of the way, and the phaser blast misses Data as he enters the room. He tells them that he came over once they lost contact with the away team. Later, once everybody's back aboard the Enterprise, Data tells Nurse Ogawa that the away team experienced their worst fears due to a gene-tailored virus that was perhaps left by the Cardassians. Data states that having a programmable memory might have his advantages after all. The end. Wow. Again, as usual, it's good to have an artificial man around. Right. As it came up in multiple episodes of TNG. Yeah, which I find funny is is he's acting like this is a new idea. Yeah, I exactly. Guess, I guess being a, not being a real boy has his advantages after all. Yes, Pinocchio. I thought the ending came way quicker than I expected. Right. So all four away team members have their own individual stories of woe. And then, boom, here's Data. We're done. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and then the cause of all of it, some kind of virus, some kind of Cardassian biogenic weapon. It's like, they don't even know. Right. It was like, ah, it's kind of anticlimactic. Um, yeah, and I was really confused about the Cardassian thing because... It's not like it was. It's not like Deep Space Nine, which is yeah. a Cardassian sh- uh, station. This is a right. Federation station or a Federation array. Right. How did the Cardassians uh, induce this? I don't know. W- w- were they close to Cardassian space? I don't know how the Cardassians came into it. Right. I agree. It, it just seemed kind of out of left field. It did. Yes. But what do you think overall? What do you <clears throat> think about the uh, visions? I was going along with the Shelby Borg thing for a little while. Then it was like, how did Riker do this to Shelby? Um, Because he didn't kill Picard because Picard somehow warned the Borg of their, their little mission or something. It was like, come on, come on. I, I, anyway, so I, I was going along with it for a little while. Then I was starting to say, Hmm, there's something fishy here. And then when the whole wharf thing about Alexander getting talking assassins into killing his father it's like that that's bs that that ain't that this is some kind of a uh illusion thing you know worst fears brought to light you know deanna has some problems and she's that's because it's affecting brains and she's got all of her emotional powers 
But then when Crusher had the thing with the Traveler and saw the Traveler, and the Traveler was kind of explaining this this warp whatever uh, creature, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe this does explain it. And then, then Wesley was dead. It was like, uh, there's no way Wesley's dead. So <laughs> anyway, I went along with it for a little while, but I pretty much figured out right away it was some kind of a mind game thing. Right. Yeah, when I saw the cover and Shelby's a Borg, I thought, well, that's that's interesting because, you know, Expanded Universe has Shelby doing other things. But oh, yeah. As we know, they don't always have to follow through with that. So sure. I was thinking, well, this is this will be an interesting story with, with her, you know, being a Borg. But, nope. Yeah, but they must un-Borg her because she's got to go off on the Excalibur with Calhoun and stuff. Uh, again, that's, yeah. they don't have to follow that continuity. I know. This is marble. I'm just saying. Uh, Yeah. So I thought the artwork at times was good and at other times not so good. Sometimes they got the faces pretty well of the actors, the original actors. And other times they were way off. I thought Date at the end, when you first see Date in the book, I thought he looked kind of a little like Denny Terrio from Dance Fever. I didn't think he looked like Fred Spiner. Um, I don't know who that is. But I'll take your <laughs> it's an old bad TV show, so you you you're good. You didn't you don't know. <laughs> anyway, no, I, I agree with you on the artwork. I, I I thought you know some of the action scenes looked good, but yeah. not necessarily like like what they would look like on a Star Trek episode, right? Uh, yeah, show, some, of, oh, some of Riker's jumping around and all the phasers going over. Uh, that that looked pretty cool, right? Yeah, but they're like going underneath him through his arms. You know, yeah, it's a it's a shot you would never see in a show, right? Because in motion it would look ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, some things work in comics and don't work in video, right? But uh, I thought that Shelby looked good as the Borg. I thought that was an interesting take on what the Borg would look like, right? Because she just doesn't even have a hand, so she doesn't even have like a pincher hand or anything like that. It's just right. It's a almost gun or ends in a stub. Like. It's her gun thing, right? Oh, is it a phaser rifle or something? I I, I thought uh, directed energy was coming out of it, but at one point. Does it actually show that? I thought so, but. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Her her hand is actually a, just a phaser. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, kind of difficult when you're trying to, you know, cut your steak. But yeah. But. It, if she was a Borg, she was a very emotional Borg. I mean, she had a vendetta. You know, it's all your fault. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so that, oh, that was, was the very... part where I was like, oh, this is this can't be real. Yeah. Yeah, Borgs don't talk like that. Right. Sorry. I am part of the collective. You'll be assimilated, yada, yada. She didn't say that at all. Or did nope. she? Uh, she? Well, she did say Maybe at the end. it's futile. But okay, it was more of like a stick it to him. Oh, yeah, yeah, by the way, resistance is futile. <laughs> I was supposed to say that. Okay. Uh, yeah, other than that, I have nothing to say. Um, I thought that Wesley looked like, you know, season three or four version of Wesley. Oh, he looked right. really young when he really was laying young. there on the, the table. Right. Yep. And especially with seeing Will Wheaton a little more these years. That's that's the way I, I tend to think of Will Wheaton. Uh, what, with the, uh, with the beard and everything? Well, yeah, the beard, but, you know, older. Right. 
I mean, he's in his forties or something, right? Uh, you're getting close. I think he he and I are about the same age. Oh, okay. Um, in regards to Will Wheaton, do you, are you watching the Will Wheaton project on Sci-Fi? I watched part of the first one. I need to go back and watch the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, I think that as of the recording, there's only been like three episodes or mm-hmm. maybe four. But so far, they're pretty good. I like them. Good. Yeah, what I saw was okay. I mean, I, I don't think he's the most natural person for this kind of gig, except for the fact that, you know, obviously the guy's got great geek cred. So if they're going to talk about sci-fi, comic books, geeks, whatever kind of stuff, he's got the qualification. And he's a really good actor. It's just, I mean, he's trying to do, uh, what, the soup? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind um, of talk show type thing. Right. So, and with lots of one-liners and zingers and stuff. And uh, I don't know. I, I think there are better people that can do that end of it. But, you know, he he's, he definitely knows our world. Right. Well, get, keep watching it. it. It's pretty good. Good. I will. You did notice the second one was uh, the subtitle of the second episode? Uh, no, I haven't known. I haven't been paying attention to the the wrath of the wrath of Wheaton. Oh, really? <laughs> Just thought I mentioned that. I'll, I'll pay attention to that going forward. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I will get back to that because they do talk about interesting things. I mean, it's kind of like going to read on the sci-fi site and that kind of stuff. You know, they'll bring up things that are right up our alley. Right. Yeah. yeah. My only complaint is. They do show spoilers, so yeah. Like you know, I've seen I've seen how Game of Thrones ends now, last season, and, and so since I haven't watched any of it, doesn't really matter. But yeah, I you do don't want to eventually. You don't watch know who it. the character. Yeah, you'll forget. Will I? Probably. It was a pretty gruesome death. I don't know if I could ever forget that. Oh, okay. Now there were multiple deaths going on. Are you talking about the I'm father? Kidding. I'm Tyrion's father. Is that Tyrion's father? Him? I, at, don't oh, know. sorry. Spoiler alert. Anyway. Mm. All right. Okay, I don't have anything else on this uh, issue. Cool. Let's go with the Taz story. All right. So same issue, the Taz backup story, uh, is entitled As Flies to Wanton Boys. Dan Abnett and Ian Edkinton have the story credit. Tom Morgan pencils, Kev Sutherland inks, Colors by Kevin Somers, Phil Felix Letterers, Chip Carter is the travel agent, Tim Tui is the passenger, and Bob Harris is the hijacker. Excuse me. So, obviously no cover to this one. So, uh, the story starts off with Kirk leading an away team to the planet in the Vitora system, and they're traveling via shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft, which is named Armstrong, has lost power as it entered the planet and is crashing to the surface. It eventually does crash, but uh, Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, Chekhov, Red Shirt Jameson, and a woman named Dr. Borden all make the crash uh, without any injuries. Back in orbit, Spock informs us via a ship's log that the Enterprise was dispatched here because they had evidence of a civilization on the planet where previous surveys had deemed that there was no sentient life. 
They lost contact completely with the shuttle. Spock is preparing to perform a full scan to find the lost crew. And also the reason for the electronic interference around the planet. He is then contacted by Admiral Merson. Merson informs the Vulcan that a colony is being threatened by a radioactive comet. And that the Enterprise needs to evacuate everyone from the colony. Even when Spock points out that they are still undergoing a rescue attempt, Merson tells him that the lives at the colony outweigh the six people on the ground. Once communication is cut, Spock orders the search to continue until the last possible moment. On the planet, all electronic devices are powerless, including the phasers, even though we still see people carrying them around as if they would help. Suddenly, Jameson and... Chekhov are hit by thorn-like arrows. The rest of the crew make it to cover as more thorns fly towards them. Kirk risks his own life and is able to carry Chekhov to safety, although the red shirt had died. Once everybody is safe aboard the shuttle, they see who their attackers are. They are vicious yellow-looking creatures with spikes all over their bodies. One of them attempts to get in while Kirk and Scotty are manually closing the door. But Dr. Borlin is able to smash it with a chair and knock it away. The creatures continue to attack the ship, but the windows on the hull seem to be keeping them at bay. Back in orbit, Spock and Sulu devise a plan to fire phasers at the dampening field around the planet. Perhaps they can cause it to dissipate enough to get the sensors through or to beam someone down. Back in the shuttle, Scotty is pulling some deck plating off when they notice that there's smoke and the temperature is increasing. The creatures are trying to smoke them out. Kirk orders McCoy to give Scotty the remaining hypos to create makeshift grenades. They can perhaps knock out their attackers and escape from the newly created oven. Back in orbit, Spock's plan works and he beams down to the source of the disturbance. Once there, he is contacted by an artificial construct. This AI tells him that the planet was once home to an advanced race called the Dati. Yeah, we're going with that. And that the aliens on the planet now are the Zosa. It also states that the Zosa destroyed the Dati 10,000 years ago. We return back to the burning hot shuttle. The crew use the hull plates as shields, and they leap clear of the surrounding flames. They throw the hypo grenades, and they work, and all the attacking Zosa are knocked out. Back at the command station, the AI tells Spock that the Daughtry were at the end of their genetic life cycle. They created the Zosa as an heir to their vast knowledge. However, when they were using the genetic material from humans, Klingons, and Gorn, the result was a monstrous race that could not be reasoned with. As a final act, the Daughtry created the dampening field to ward off any other space travelers from arriving to the planet. Spock notes that the programming is failing, hence the Federation caught wind that there was life here after all. He also states that no race should be allowed to not advance past the Stone Age. With that, he turns off the dampening field forever. We then have a short epilogue. Kirk's away team had returned to the ship, and they were able to make it to the colony and rescue them from the radioactive comet. 
Dr. Borden has volunteered to continue research on the Zosa people. Kirk and Spock then have a debate on the ethics of holding back a species that is prone to only violence. They hope that one day the Zosa will move past their barbaric ways. The end. Well, I'd like this one. Um, it was very reminiscent of another classic Taz episode. Derivative, shall we say? Yes. Right. So the episode in question is Galileo 7. Mm-hmm. Which is and, even mentioned in the story. Right. Which makes it even worse that, <laughs> that Scotty actually says, hey, you know this reminds me of our Galileo 7 incident. Yeah. That yep. doesn't make it clever. That just makes it kind of silly. No, but at least they're acknowledging the fact that they're retreading <laughs> an existing idea, but this time Kirk gets to uh, be the leader. Right, instead of Spock. Yep. Now, th- those creatures in the Galileo 7, did they smoke them out too to get them out of the shuttle, or what was their no. motivation to get them back out? Oh, they never uh, – they were never able to figure out a way to get them out, except that they were like throwing huge rocks at the at the hull and things yeah, like and that. and spears and stuff. And spears. Well, the spears didn't do much, but yeah, rocks, and they were trying to shake it and all that kind of stuff. They never got to the point of using uh, – fire they were big guys and maybe they were a little too primitive for that i don't know but right they certainly didn't have projectile porcupine kind of things going yeah and where were those where were those arrow thorns coming from off their bodies or i I thought it came off their bodies but it never actually shows them leaving them so i wasn't sure yeah that's true but i thought um you know Hey, tan thorns are inside a Chekhov and the other guy. Hey, right. it looks like tan thorns are on their bodies. Yeah, I thought the same thing, but yeah. I just wasn't sure. Yep. No conclusive evidence, but uh, I think they were nasty. They were they were a nasty life form. Yeah, and, that, they... and that's what kind of surprised me how extreme Kirk was in his opinion. I mean, he didn't want to talk about it. So, about which one? Uh, talk about what? Well, he didn't want to talk about the idea that maybe there should be some interference here. Maybe they shouldn't have free reign. Um, they are an artificial life form, after all. Uh, they're not a naturally occurring being, which does not mean that they don't have prime directive protection necessarily. But I think you at least talk about it. I mean, what did Kirk say? Um Every 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 species has a right to evolve and grow, and I don't even want to talk about the alternative. It's like, really? It's like, these guys are really nasty. I mean, you should at least talk about it, but I thought it was kind of... I think I think they just wanted to shut down the conversation. You know, you just wrap up the story. I think so. But I think there should have been a little bit more debate going on. Yeah. But, I mean, could what could they have done, though? Didn't Spock already turn it off? Well, he turned it off, but they could have turned it back on again. I mean, it was a switchy flip, right? He didn't blow it up, did he? Uh, no, but I thought he was saying that it was already failing and that it wouldn't come back. Well, I'm sure they could have gotten it going. And by the way, I could see that preventing the Zosa from leaving the planet and from people from people getting to the planet, but... Was that actually supposed to somehow inhibit their evolution? Well, they could never create anything 
that would use electricity. Oh, okay. Hmm. So why why well, they would have to stay at the Stone Age? I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, you could do more. You, yeah. I mean, you could wait. You could go up to the 16th century. I mean, you could have painting. You could have, you know, the wheel. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do with electricity. But anyway, a little. You and little I know that, that point, but do they know that? Well, I would think the Federation team would know that. Who didn't even mention it? But whatever. Anyway, I, I just thought it was a little, a little forced. The story is a little forced, but yeah, whatever. Um, I do like some of the artwork, though. I like the creatures. I thought they looked really cool. Yeah, the creatures look cool. I thought the Armstrongs crash was pretty cool looking. Um, With nacelles flying off everywhere. Exactly everywhere. Uh, I thought that was pretty good, and I think uh, I think some of the some of the drawings of the characters some of them were quite good i i enjoyed them yeah no i'm with you i liked it accurate very faithful um more so than the next one i think yeah the next one is not very faithful in many ways it was more well let's talk about that later (laughs) okay so who who does the admiral uh mirson i think who does he remind you of his look i thought he looked a lot like uh like Peter Weller. Oh, Peter Weller. Oh, that's interesting. When I first saw him, I said, he does not look like somebody from the Taz series, but he looks familiar. So who who does he look like? Who does he... Uh, Humphrey Bogart. That's, uh. He's Humphrey Bogart. So, I mean, not perfectly Humphrey Bogart, but he reminds me of Humphrey Bogart myself. Oh, but, that's funny. Yeah, Peter Weller. I, I guess I could see that. Anyway, yeah, just thought I'd mention that. Yeah. Well, are you not going to say anything about the radioactive comet that's going to take out a colony? Oh, I, that I, thing? I, I've been waiting to hear your opinion on that. Well, well uh, okay. Uh, I mean, at least they're not deflecting it this time. But, I mean, that whole plot point I thought you would have something to say about. Uh, really? What, that this has been done 15 jillion times? What, the right. timing of it is quite coincidental? Um, you know, what, why, oh, you mean about the fact that it's radioactive as well as being a comet? Yeah, it's a comet that's going to somehow hit a, pla- hit a planet. Yeah. And it's radiation, and, I mean, it has all the stereotypical thing that we see like a million times in Gold Key stuff. Yeah. That you always complain about, and then here you're like, meh, that's okay. Well, I have nothing to say. <laughs> well, the only thing I could – I mean it's, it's just like in the in Galileo 7 again. There has to be some artificial thing uh, that that makes the Enterprise have to call off a search. It's like uh, – uh, whether it be a radioactive comet in this one or what was it, a famine or something in Galileo 7? I oh, forgot right. what the reason was. But there was something where that Fox guy was trying to get him to leave. Getting Kirk to leave, it's just I don't know. It's cookie cutter. Yeah, I even forgot about that. The, even that that part of the plot is exactly the same. Yeah, that's funny. I, I did like how Sulu was working with Spock a lot. In right. Kinda, well, I mean, kind of working people left things. on the bridge. Every other person <laughs> is on that stupid shuttle. 
<laughs> Which, by the way, it makes perfect sense why you'd put all your top people uh, in it. Yeah. yeah including including the board. captain, but whatever. Right. Yeah. So I, I was glad to see Scotty Mustache. Oh. <laughs> you like that, huh? I don't know. I just think it, it, it's a good way to think that maybe towards the end of the five-year mission, he did grow out his mustache. Right, right. Although he didn't have it in the animated show, so this must be after that, right? It must be, because that's canon. Darn right. And then uh, my last comment is when the Enterprise was shooting Disruptor Field or whatever, mm-hmm. that little tie-dyed, swirly planet thing reminded me a lot of the old show. Oh, yeah. yeah. How their special effects looked. Right. <laughs> You know, even with the psychedelic kind of thing going, I kind of like that. I thought it was kind of cool looking. Yeah, no, the, this picture is actually pretty cool. I mean, it looks yeah. like a tie-dye type thing, and then there's, like, asteroids in front of it. Right. It was a cool little picture. Yeah, I, I liked it. So, it wasn't very realistic, but uh, the colors, but, hey, look kind of nice. Right. I did think that the monitor, when the monitor shows up, I thought he reminded me of... Jim Carrey's version of the mask a bit. I can see that. Yep. A bit. Yeah. I just got, when I was just thumbing through the book before I actually read it, I thought maybe it was a Tholian. Oh, Tholian. A Tholian uh, talking to him on a communicator or something, you know, cause right. I was just thumbing through it. Right. But, uh, nope, just a disembodied AI head. Right. That looks pretty much like a mask. And speaks English. Very handy, isn't it? But apparently has no power cause he can't do anything to stop Spock from turning off the machine. So, Whatever. Nope. And let, let's talk about that. So 10,000 years ago, over 10,000 years ago, right. the Daughtry went out into the cosmos, collected genetic material from the Klingons, humans, and Gorn that we know of. Right. Right. So we weren't floating around space 10,000 years ago, so that means they had to come to Earth. Yep. Long trip. Right. So they must be the little green guys who we still see today. I don't know. No, those are Ferengi. We already know who they are. <laughs> Ferengis aren't green. Yeah. Yes. Either are the green guys. They're actually gray. Don't you know anything, Ken? Some are green and some are gray. Don't. Oh, so don't now pay, it's a racial don't pay, thing? Don't paint all one color, my friend. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah um, I just thought that was weird. So that they mentioned those three genetic pools. Right. And apparently they took on the worst traits of all of them. <laughs> so great, perfect. And you know their face, you know, especially when the face is sticking in through the shuttle door and Kirk's trying to get it closed. That's a pretty over-the-top nasty-looking face. Right. That's kind of scary-looking, I thought. Yeah, no, when you make that, you... you... I want to start over. <laughs> um, Fred, the faces didn't come out too good. Should we try a different mix? No, it's great. It'll work. <laughs> and they'll be able to shoot those spines, you know, because every civilized race needs those. Yeah, it's like, hmm. <laughs> anyway, it, it, uh, a frightening face. An odd choice for an apparently advanced intelligent society to create them. Right. And I'm, I'm assuming that they looked like 
the uh, AI guy. So probably, you know, moon-shaped face or whatever. Right. Nothing like, like these guys. No, I would be surprised. I mean, they don't look like Gorns, and they don't look like Klingons, and they don't look like humans. So not quite sure yeah. how they came out with that. Actually, it looks like some kind of a uh, an African tribal mask or something. I don't know. It's weird. Right. Yeah, it looks like a bat face, kind of. Well, with the nose, right. Right. Yeah, definitely a bat nose. And then what did you think about the whole species was dying out because they ran out of genetic combinations or or whatever they were getting at there? Their genetic pool was too low? Yeah, they're just somehow – yeah, somehow the genetic pool couldn't sustain itself anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, definitely things like that have been brought up in science fiction in the past here and there. Like, oh, we can't reproduce anymore, so, you know, we tried cloning. And wasn't that the thing that was going on in that one Next Gen episode? Just because it was Uh, easier, they started cloning everybody, and then it got to the point where, oh, we're screwed. Sorry. Let me do that again. (laughs) Oh, we're in trouble. Right. We depend upon cloning too much instead of the good old-fashioned way. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Things can happen over time. Yep, we'll see. We'll see what happens to us humans if we ever get to that situation. Right, right. Where we run out of genetic material. Right. I, well, whatever. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure we'll figure out something, some other way to kill ourselves off before then. (laughs) Good point. So that's all I have to say about this one. I'm done. Uh, Same here. Uh, Wasn't a fan of this one. Mm, I wasn't a big fan either. wasn't a fan of the Borg one either, except for some of the the shots of that version of the Borg looked cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there were some cool looking things in both issues, but story wise, not crazy about them. Right. Yeah. Let's do the third one and see if it changes. Let's. I will be doing this one. It's titled Mirror Mirror Number One from Marvel. This is a one off. February 1997, and the creative team is Tom DeFalco, writer, Mark Bagley, penciler, Larry Malstead, I think I did that right, inker, Joe Babcock, letterer, colors and enhancements by Team Boosie, Bobby Chase, editor, Bob Harras, editor-in-chief. The cover shows the frowny faces of Kirk and Mirror Universe Spock complete with beard. The Enterprise is present in the upper right with forward phasers firing. In the lower left is a fiery heavenly body, probably a star. The top of the cover has the text Star Trek Mirror Mirror. At the bottom of the cover, the text tells us this issue is a sequel to the legendary television episode. Prologue, the fiery hulk of a Constitution-class Federation vessel explodes, finally giving over to her fate under the relentless bombardment of three Klingon heavy cruisers. Cut to the bridge of the lead Klingon ship. Lord Skarl is not sharing in his crew's celebration over destroying yet another Federation vessel. There are so many yet to be destroyed. The communications officer says another Federation vessel is in the nearby Hulken system. 
The Lord offers a new hunt and asks if their new query has a name. The communications officer replies, Enterprise. Cut to the Enterprise transporter room in the Mirror Mirror Universe. This part of the story picks up where the original Taw's Mirror Mirror episode ended. Mirror Universe Captain Kirk, Ohura, McCoy, Scotty are stepping forward off the pad as Spock and a security detail advance on them with phasers drawn. Kirk tries to explain he and his landing party was in some kind of alternate dimension, so he could not have heard Starfleet's orders to destroy the Hulkans. Spock says it is convenient that he was in an alternate dimension, which explains why he did not carry out his orders. However, Starfleet has given him orders to kill Kirk and take command of the Enterprise. He will carry out his orders. Kirk notices Marlena is in the transporter room standing near Spock. He demands to know why she is there with Spock. She is his woman! Spock cuts the chatter and orders security to take Kirk to the brig and the others to the briefing room. After they leave, Marlena talks to Spock alone. She tells him he is crazy for not killing Kirk immediately. He is a threat to both of them as long as he lives. Spock says he will not kill Kirk without a reason. Though Starfleet gave him orders to kill Kirk and assume command, they gave the orders without knowing about the alternate dimension situation. Marlena tells him, again, he has to kill Kirk immediately. Spock says they will discuss this later in Kirk's former quarters after he has debriefed the rest of the landing party. Marlena begins to question her decision to trust Spock and betray Kirk. Later, Spock joins McCoy and the rest of Kirk's landing party in the briefing room, and they are hopping mad. Spock calms them down and tells them a truthful recap of what happened after they switched places with their alternate dimensions counterparts. A. The volatile ion storm's effects on their transport from the Hulkin planet to the Enterprise. The alternate Kirks giving the Hulkins an unprecedented 12 hours to reconsider their position rather than initiating the customary phaser barrage. Their attempted escape back to their own dimension that resulted in Spock's near-death blow to the head. Dr. McCoy saving Spock's life. Sulu trying to advance by killing both Kirk and Spock, which failed. Spock leaves the briefing room while saying that they will all submit their reports as to what they saw to Starfleet Command. Starfleet will make their decisions, and until then, no action will be taken on the Hulkins. McCoy follows Spock out of the hallway, saying he knows Spock, and he knows he left something out. Spock capitulates and tells McCoy that his mind meld with the alternate McCoy told him of the alternate dimension's benevolent federation that will likely stand much longer than their brutal totalitarian empire. Since conquering is far easier than maintaining control, he estimates the empire will fall in approximately 200 years. McCoy questions whether the more merciful empire would last any longer. Spock says it is possible. Suddenly, a group of four red shirts, led by a confederate of Sulu's, tries to kill Spock. Spock disables three of them, but the fourth has the drop on Spock with a phaser and is about to kill him. Finally, all four of the red shirts disappear. Marlena, who has been watching all this via the Tantalus device, used it to save Spock. She is stuck with her chosen side. McCoy can't believe his eyes. 
Spock comments the device can win a captaincy, or perhaps an empire? Meanwhile, in the brig, Kirk is telling Sulu his people have likely failed in their assassination attempt if he has not heard from them by now. They strike up a deal, and Kirk offers Sulu the soon-to-be-vacant first officer's position, with a devil's grin on his face. Meanwhile, in Kirk's quarters, Spock is thanking Marlena and conjecturing on how the Tantalus device works. He ends up giving her a passionate kiss to seal their partnership. He tells her that having a relationship with a Vulcan can be... stimulating. Mm -hmm. He leaves her to make another alliance with Chekhov. He secures Chekhov's loyalty relatively easily. Meanwhile, on the Klingon ship, Lord Skarl is reading up on Kirk and considers him a worthy opponent. On the Enterprise bridge, Spock is in the captain's chair and says Marlena will man his science station until further notice. Ohura relays a message from Starfleet saying that Admiral Decker is on his way and will rendezvous with the Enterprise in about 32 hours. He expects Spock to resolve the Hulkin situation by the time he arrives. Chekhov reports long-range scans detect incoming Klingon ships six hours out. Spock takes McCoy and Scotty down to visit the Hulkins. Meanwhile in the brig, Kirk and Sulu hatch a plan to kill Spock on his return. On the planet, Spock proposes to the Hulkins that they can protest the taking of their dilithium crystals all they want, but the Empire will take the crystals anyway. This way, they can make their case for peace, and the Empire gets what they want without having to wipe out the Hulkin population. The Hulkin leader is surprised, but at least he says he will consider it. Before they transport up, McCoy comments on his proposal. Spock says it is the most logical solution for all parties. Sulu's still active security codes allows his confederates to redirect the landing party's transport signal to a cargo room in the ship, where Sulu's men are waiting for him. Spock, McCoy, and Scotty give it a great fight, but they start going down due to superior numbers. Marlena gets to the Tantalus device just in time to make most of Sulu's men disappear. Chekhov and his men arrive in time to take the few remaining conspirators to the brig. They figure Sulu has a way to contact his henchmen from the brig. Since that would require some communications trickery, Spock thinks he knows who might be helping Sulu and betraying him. Spock gets an update from Uhura, who says the Klingons have increased speed and should arrive in 52 minutes. Spock says they have run out of time and bring Scotty in to meet the Tantalus device. Spock theorizes that if the field can transport targeted people into oblivion, in theory, it could make larger objects disappear also, even ships. He tells Scotty to study it and see if there is a way to extend the Tantalus field beyond the ship. Scotty says they would have to feed a lot more power into it without frying its circuits. It may even require power directly from the warp core to extend that far and affect such a large object. Spock tells him to make it happen as quickly as he can. They must be ready for the Klingons when they arrive. Meanwhile, the so-so-slanky Lieutenant Ohura enters the brig and uses her feminine assets to get close to the only guard on duty and ends up stabbing him in the chest. She releases Sulu and Kirk. 
Chekhov reports Kirk and Sulu's escape to Spock, who is in the captain's quarters with Scotty and Marlena. The boosted Tantalus device is making good progress, but it isn't ready yet. Spock leaves for the bridge and asks Scotty one last time to do the best he can to be ready when he tells him to start removing Klingon cruisers from his sky. Spock arrives on the bridge for the first disruptor blast from the Klingons. He is hailed by Lord Skarl, who only wants to talk to Kirk, the true captain of the Enterprise. Spock says he is the current captain, and he respectfully asks the Klingons for their surrender, since they are trespassing in Empire space. Skarl, of course, refuses, and is treated to witnessing over the viewer an insurrection aboard the Enterprise. Kirk cuts in over the shipwide PA, saying he is the rightful captain, and he will take his ship back from Spock. Lieutenant Idelson, who was at the navigation station on the bridge, stands up and tries to get the rest of the bridge personnel to revolt against Spock, saying only Kirk can save them against the Klingons. Chekhov takes out Idelson. Emboldened by what he sees as a splintered crew, Skarl says he will fire upon the Enterprise and board her. Marlena enters the bridge and gives Spock the thumbs up. Spock tries one last time to warn the Klingons to surrender. The Klingons attack. Spock uses the juiced-up Tantalus device and makes three of the four Klingon warships disappear one at a time. Skarl recognizes that the Empire has a devastating new weapon that they must warn Klingon High Command about. He retreats and accepts the dishonor that comes with it. The bridge crew cheer for Captain Spock, who defeated the numerically superior Klingon force and saved them all. The cheering ends quickly when Kirk, Sulu, Uhura, and three red shirts burst onto the bridge from the turbolift. A fight ensues. Spock's superior strength takes out some of Sulu's red shirts and keeps Kirk at bay until Uhura is able to temporarily take out Marlena and activate a switch at her communications station. An ultrasonic sound is apparently blasting across the bridge. The humans do not hear it, but Spock screams in agony and loses his death grip on Kirk. Kirk takes the opportunity to beat the heck out of Spock while doing an anti-alien rant against green-blooded monsters like Spock. A very Sulu-looking Chekhov tells Spock to hold on as he and the bridge crew mop up the last of Sulu's henchmen. Just as all appears to be lost for Spock, Marlena gets up and takes Ohura out. She deactivates the sound. Though no longer disabled by the sound, Kirk has beaten Spock to a green, bloody mess. Kirk is ready to make what he thinks will be the final death blow and charges Spock. Both men go hurtling into Ohura's comm station, which unexpectedly explodes! Chekhov says he rigged Ohura's station to blow when they confirmed she was a traitor. He says no one could have survived this trap, yet out of the red and yellow smoke comes a standing figure. Hours later aboard Commodore Decker's ship, that is stationed next to the Enterprise, Decker addresses Spock and his senior officers. He confirms with Spock that the conditions that allowed Kirk and his landing party to switch places with their counterparts in the other dimension are unique and will not happen again. Right, Spock? Spock confirms it won't happen again. 
Then the Commodore asks if Spock has anything to say beyond the Hulkin situation that are in the contents of his official report. Spock explains the whole kinder, gentler empire thing. We need to change our ways or fall in 200 years. Begrudgingly, the Commodore accepts Spock's more lenient approach to resolving the Hulkin situation. The Hulkins will not be blasted to an extinction if he has anything to say about it. As to the change in policy required across the entire empire to annex Spock's more sustainable vision, that will remain to be seen. The Commodore says Spock's ideas are bold and radical, but that is only to be expected from the new captain of the Enterprise. The end. What was the Admiral's name? Decker? Decker. Decker. We hear about Deckers a lot lately between this and the Starfleet Academy books. Right. Now, does this guy look like the guy from Doomsday Machine that had Matt Decker in it? Um, I don't think so. Do you think? I, I didn't think so either. No. That, what, William Wyndham? Was that his name? I don't know. You know, this episode is kind of hit and miss as far as how often they look like the actors and how often there is artistic license taken. Right. Which is fine. I'm just saying that I didn't think that that guy looked at all like him. No. What do you think of the artwork? Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of this kind of style. Yeah. I mean, it's okay, but it's really kind of cartoony. Not really cartoony, but comic booky. Which is, I know, (laughs) but... uh, it's it's a unique style that that's pretty common, especially in the '90s. But oh, is it okay? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't necess- There was a lot of our artistic license taken. Everybody looks incredibly lean and muscular without being ridiculous. It's definitely a style, and it's I think it's an attractive style. I think it looks good. I like it, but you do. good. But uh, it 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 isn't always faithful to the original actors. <laughs> Which I'm not too crazy about that bit of it. Right. Yeah, like Spock, he looks Asian often, I thought. Right. Well, heck, Chekhov looks really Asian in that one panel. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a common... I mean, I've seen it enough that I kind of recognized it. Right. I, I don't know exactly... Can't put my finger on where I've seen it before, though. Yeah. I liked how things played out post the TV episode. Um, until the end. I thought it was just a little too pat. Actually, oh. in some ways, I kind of liked the end because I kind of liked the idea of, of Spock being the captain and with, with that new crew as, like, new possibilities. But I just think it it was a little bit too pat an ending. Well, I didn't like the ending because it it contradicts... Deep Space Nine's Mirror Mirror episodes, which probably I think we're already shown at this point. So, I mean, in those episodes, they talk about, you know, the Federation being ruled by Emperor Tiberius, which is Kirk. Right. He's dead now. Yeah. Well, okay. And like I said before... This could be a slightly different version of the Mirror Mirror Dimension. I don't know. But yeah, good point. True. Yep. And also some things like 
Spock was mooey, mooey macho in this one. I mean, he was Charles Fracken Bronson in this comic, which I thought was pretty cool. But what happened at the end when that explosion happened at Uhura's console? The way they had that position, the, the different characters were positioned, it looked to me like Kirk was hurling Spock into the exploding communication station. Right. So Spock, with that amazing Vulcan physique, was able to take the bulk of the blast in his back, which would have protected Kirk to some degree, and Spock survives. He's now, Vulcan. I know. He's Vulcan. And he's, ta- and he's definitely proven that he can take on 15 jillion guys at the same time in this comic, but still. And still have enough energy to give the smooches to the ladies. You ain't kidding. And not only the smooches to the ladies, but he's basically letting Marlena know. <laughs> you got some treats coming to you, my lady. Which is really, okay, okay, Spock. Yeah. A little confidence there. That's good, that's good. Anyway, I, I, I kind of like Spock in this one. But they really did pump him up as the, as the ultimate hero. Right. Maybe a little too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was kind of like a, a 90s, 2000 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme or something. I mean, he was like, he could he could beat up almost anybody and like he was good with the ladies and was like, oh my God, the ultimate hero. Ultimate action hero, Spock. Right. Yeah, he was James Bond. James Bond, there's another one. So, anyways, I did you? Let's just talk about the overall story. Did you mm-hmm. did you care for it? Did you did you really like it? You... I liked it in some ways. Like, for example, Spock made a promise to Arkirk. He said he would do what he could to to make sure the Hulkins didn't die, and to try to make a more reasonable empire, uh, not so brutal. And Spock, damn it, was doing it. And the when that was first going on. I was thinking to myself, well, how is he going to do this? And Spock did it without lying to people. He basically said, I know what I got to do, but I'm not going to lie. And he basically was saying, hey, you'll file your report. I'll file my report, and we'll just uh, see how things lie. And he was pretty true to the Spock character from those standpoints. So that bit of it I liked. And I liked how nasty Kirk was. I especially, Kirk and Sulu, I think they drew Kirk and Sulu when they were being particularly evil and mischievous. I think they drew them very well. So I like those bits. But, you know, I mean, they firmly seem to have this evil version of our universe on the right trajectory towards a kinder, gentler empire, which I find difficult to believe. Right. That part I didn't like. What about you? What do you, what do you think? Um, I, I didn't really care for much of it. I don't, I don't like the Tautilus button thing. I, I, I didn't like it in the show and, and then yeah. now they've amped it up to, you know, now it can take out whole fleets of Klingon vessels. Didn't, didn't care for that. Well, they just briefly say about the Tantalus thing. When I saw yeah. it in the episode, I thought this is just magic. This is just magic. I, didn't, I wasn't crazy about it. But then 
Spock in this issue explained what he thought it was, which is basically a repurposed transporter to pluck a targeted person and basically beam them away to nothingness or whatever. And it's like, huh, well, okay, that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, you could use a transporter as a weapon. And I guess I just never thought of it that way. And that's basically what the Tantalus field was. So I thought from that standpoint, it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. But they did depend upon it a lot, this story. Yeah, and it was it was magic. It just worked. Well, I mean, you think about it, is if you had enough transporter juice, couldn't you dematerialize a ship and just transport it into space without reassembling the molecules? Sure. In theory. And you can just beam your own ship ah! transport in it. Uh-huh. Well, right. I know... So where do you stop? Well, I know. Well, where do you stop with a holodeck? I mean, if you really think about what a holodeck says it is, it's like, oh, there's all kinds of ramifications that come up with a holodeck tech, too. But whatever. Right. Uh, the transport is problematic, any way you look at it. No, it's perfect. Nah. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Okay. Don't, don't like the Tantalus device. That's cool. Right. And then... I didn't really understand. I was kind of looking forward to seeing mirror Klingons. Right. And maybe they were the more benevolent race uh, oh, in this, I got you. In this right. mirror universe. But no, they're, they're exactly like our Klingons. Yeah. And they're very willing to, uh, or things have escalated to the point that they're very willing and happy to gang up on Empire ships and blow them to bits. Right. As we saw in the beginning. I kind of like that first page. That was pretty cool. I liked it. Oh, it was really cool. And it and it really reminded me of the Kelvin blowing up. I don't know why. But oh, yeah. It yeah, just kind of yeah, looked like true. that. Right. Yeah, because they, yep. they showed it on one page, and they just showed the explosion of that, uh, of that other ship um, under the barrage. Very nice. Did they even say what that ship's name was? No, I don't. I didn't see it. You know, I, I, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, they didn't say anything, but since it looked, was a Constitution class vessel, the first thing you're thinking, oh, oh my God, it's the Enterprise. You know, is this some kind of foreshadowing thing they're doing or what? But no, it turns out it wasn't. It was just another Constitution class vessel. So, right, look cool. We never did get to see the uh, the hull of this Enterprise that has the you know the sword and stuff oh on it. right right damn it i like seeing that yeah me too yeah i especially like that enterprise episode that seemed to have that coming up all over the place you know the sword and everything right oh, very cool yeah so uh kind of on a, on a side note you know obviously this is not the first or the last mirror mirror story to be told in comic books mm -hmm. dc had several issues in their first volume where they went into what would be like the movie era um, version of the Mirror Mirror universe. But currently, IDW is doing a series of photo novels and one of the photo novels is a sequel to Where No Man Has Gone Before and the other one is a sequel to Mirror Mirror. 
So I'm I'm looking forward to when we get to read those and see how different that John Byrne's sequel is different than this sequel. Right. And because it's a photo novel, it's going to actually be, you know, the actors, you know. Right, exactly. It's going to be Shatner. It's going to be... (laughs) I'm kind of looking forward to this. I know we've mentioned those kind of things before. I mean, I actually had, when I was a kid, some paperbacks that were basically just the episodes. So they actually had photos from the actual episodes, and then they had just word balloons where they're just doing the dialogue. So they didn't change the story at all. Right. Uh, so from that standpoint, it was kind of eh. But I, I remember liking it. But the idea of them taking stills from the TV series and reworking them into a new story is intriguing. Right. Well, and the reason why photo novels in the past existed and why they've kind of phased out is because you didn't have reruns. You didn't have, you know, DVDs, VHS. Yeah. So the only way you could relive your favorite movie or TV show was to buy these photo novels. And then, you know, it was kind of, I got to see the picture and I got to read what they're talking about. So right. it was kind of the, it was kind of like having a rerun or, or a DVD right there in your hand. But, right. Um, well, I did that when I was a kid. The only thing is I did it with audio cassettes. So I had a shoebox full of audio cassettes that I had recorded off of the TV speaker, <laughs> you know, while the, uh, while the show was playing. But, right, with the dog barking <laughs> in the background and the phone exactly, ringing. Exactly, exactly. All that stuff was part of it. It was almost like a new experience. Now, I, you know, no visuals, I'll agree, but, man, I remember being on a lot of vacation drives listening to The Adventures of Kirk and Spock and enjoying it quite a bit. But good point. No video, awesome. no videotape back then. Nope. You, you, you guys, you were living in the Stone Age. I know. I'm old. You were like these Zosa people. Nah, <laughs> but I wasn't violent. Hey, you tell me. As far as you know. Yeah, I remember it was high school that we got our first VHS deck. And it was like, uh, oh my gosh. And guess what I started doing? Recording Star Trek. Yes! <laughs> I did. It was pretty cool. I, I, I liked the issue. It was pretty good, but the end was kind of pat. Yeah. I, I didn't like it quite as much as you did, but, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't horrible. Right. Now, compared to the previous issue, <laughs> it's, uh, I definitely like this one better than the previous book. Right. No, it... But yeah, this beats both of those stories. Yeah, yeah. but but were you expecting something a little more, maybe? I, probably. I wasn't expecting Kirk to go down like that. Oh, you weren't. Yeah. No. Well, I definitely wasn't expecting Kirk to go down uh, in that exploding console the way it happened. But you know, okay. Yeah, well, that's what I meant. I really, yeah. I wasn't expecting him to die in this. Yeah. In yeah this period. Right. right. I'll tell you what I'm not expecting is. Where the heck is Commodore Decker standing when we first see him? Um, I mean, obviously on his own ship, I guess, but that's a heck of a ship. I mean, it almost looks like part of it's Deep Space Nine, and he's a giant standing on uh, on part of it or something. There at the end? At the end. Right. 
Yeah, we're, yeah. We, that's that's the only time. We, yeah, so when we first see the Commodore. Okay, I was thinking. I was thinking that he was in a view screen earlier, and I was scrolling through trying to find a view screen. Yeah, no, I got. I, I had. I was wondering the same thing. Yeah, because it. I mean, if you don't have the comic, it's a pretty cool looking view area he happens to be in. So it makes it look like there is just a huge transparent aluminum wall on whatever ship he's in, and he's just got a great view of the Enterprise and the and the Hulk and planet and everything. Well, is that supposed to be the Enterprise, or is that supposed to be his ship? Um, NCC, well, zero, zero 001? Yeah, it looks hmm. like it might be like 1C01, which that doesn't make sense. No, that doesn't. Well, I, I thought that was the Enterprise, because it, it's Constitution-class ship. Okay, well, okay, so if that if that's the Commodore ship that they can see out the transparent aluminum side of the uh, uh, of the ship they're in, they must be in the Enterprise then. And that's so, what I thought because he's making that comment about I didn't come here to eat your food. Okay, okay. So what part of the Enterprise is that then? I don't know. Mirror that's Mirror pretty... Universe has a big window. <laughs> that's huge. That's that's something. That's pretty cool. I'd like to see that in in a Taz movie. <laughs> Maybe they're in the the botany area, and, and the Mirror Mirror Universe doesn't need to grow the flowers, so that they have this instead. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But it almost looks like some kind of a just like a sphere or something, or at least a half sphere right. that has one heck of an observation area for you to look out. No, nope, right. looks pretty cool. It looks very cool. I just don't know what it is. Anyway, what else um, you got? Uh, that's it. I'm glad I read it. It's an interesting, this is the first thing I've ever seen that tried to do, uh, this is what happened exactly after the original Mirror Mirror episode, so I liked it. Uh, from Mm -hmm. that standpoint, it could have been better, definitely, but, interesting. Right. Yeah, and I kept waiting for the Hora to side with, and that she was really on Spock's side the whole time. Oh. And, And I was getting that mainly from... The IDW ongoing Mirror Mirror episode where Ahura was always playing like she was oh, on right. one side and then right. <gasps> switch. She's on, she's been on Kirk's side the whole time. So I, I kind of thought that there would be another switch here, but that was me just mixing the two continuities. Right. And that is kind of interesting, too, if you think about the original Mirror Mirror episode where Sulu and Ahura had a interaction. It didn't seem like they had a relationship in the Taz thing, but... It was our Uhura interacting with Sulu, so right. could there have been something? I don't know. And we just didn't know it until now? Or is they did the writers of this story just, just whip that up? Even though it right. isn't consistent with the original series episode. I don't know. Right. Well, if you read the, uh, the little interview at the end... Ah. Which I did. He, he kind of talks about, you know, he after he watched all those episodes when he was, you know, ten, he had all these questions, and that was one of them. Oh, it was there. What was the relationship between Mira Ahura and Mira Sulu? Ah, so okay, fine. So he he did think there could have been that. Okay, right. Okay, well, I have to read that after we finish up. Okay. All right. Well, I don't have any comments, so I guess we can close up if you're done. Cool. I am done. All right. Uh, next week, we're doing Academy Starfleet Academy. All right, y- you just do it. Okay, so we're tell, doing. Tell the folks. 
<laughs> so we're doing Marvel Starfleet Academy 7 through 9. Cool. Get back to see what Nog and the gang are all about. And we're getting close to the big crossover. Ah, yes. If I'm not mistaken, we should be getting to another crossover here pretty soon, and that is of a uh, certain favorite captain of ours, Captain Pike. Oh, as part of Unlimited or what? Nope, as part of Starfleet Academy. No way! What? (laughs) Oh, come on! Yeah, I've mentioned I mentioned it back when we were doing the Pike years, so uh, I'll mention uh, it again. He will make another appearance. So somehow he comes into the future. Somehow the kids go in the past. I don't get it, but I guess I, I will when I read it. We will when we. I don't know if it'll be this week or uh, at a, or in a couple of weeks, but right. We're, it's not that long a series, so we should be getting close. Well, if it's not in the next one episode 172, then maybe it's in episode 174. Hmm. We'll find out. You can wait that long. I can wait. Although, maybe I'll take a sneak peek. (laughs) I'm intrigued now. Yeah, that's why I said it. Ah! A teaser. A teaser. Yes. Okay, well, let's wrap up and uh, get back to doing our real work. (laughs) Go back to our our real real lives. lives. Our real boring lives compared to all this. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here